0: Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. And this
1: episode of The Running Public is brought to you by us and The Running Public Training Plan.
0: This running plan has everything we ever talk about on any Training Tuesday all compiled into one all-encompassing training plan. Now, it's an OCR-specific training plan, but 95% of this is just running. So it doesn't matter if you're training for an OCR or a marathon or whatever. It all is in there. Speed work threshold, hill work, up, down, long run, long qualities, and plenty of compromised running. Everything we talk about is just waiting for you.
1: That's right. The hardest part about creating your own training schedule is deciding what to do the next day or that day. We take care of that for you, which I think is worth the uh, $19.99 a month in itself. It's cheap, right? And you can cancel at any time. If you've been curious about it or you don't know how to put together all the knowledge we share on the podcast into your own training plan, it's a no-brainer. Where can people go find this uh, this training plan and get signed up, Bragan?
0: On our beautiful website, therunningpublic.com. $19.99 a month. Cancel anytime you want. Click. We're live.
1: I think we're live. Again, we've been having problems with this system.
0: Looking at the screen is really, really embarrassing right now. Because you're like this tanned golden god, and I'm haunting the screen.
1: Oh, oh start. What a way to start my Monday morning! Thanks, Bracken. I wouldn't say you're haunting the screen. We've had very different summers, haven't we?
0: It is August first, as we speak, and I have never—I would say—in my 35 years on this earth, never been this pale on August first in my entire life.
1: It's really the perfect storm for you, isn't it?
0: It is. I—I th- well, tore my hernia in May. Got yep. surgery in June. And so that limited my outdoor time because I couldn't really run downhill. I could run flat, but not downhill. And if I'm going to run flat, I might as well watch something on TV. So I didn't do a whole lot of trail running other than that hundred mile week. And then afterwards I have seasonal allergies that started later in life and I really react to pollen. And I was so terrified of sneezing that I did not go outside my house for two (laughs) weeks for probably longer than 20 seconds at a time. Like if I had to get to the car or to the garbage can, I did it and got back inside. And that just dug a hole, and it's been that way ever since. It's not too late, Bracken. There's hope for you. And that vitamin D is
1: important, Bracken, for your immune system. No. So maybe small doses: 20 minutes today, 25 minutes two days from now, 30 minutes four days from now. Just microdose your sun. What is this? Didn't you use a sun analogy about getting your tan? Appropriately, and you related it to training somehow in a past episode. I don't remember what that was. Do you? Yeah, that the suntan right tan
0: analogy. It's yeah, all you, you need to know tan. about training dose. <laughs> <laughs> and and that yeah exactly. So use for the suntan analogy. Stress recovery adaptation. You can't just go out and sit in the sun for ten hours a day to get tan. You got to get right on the edge and then back off for a little bit and let it set in. So otherwise, stress you just peel. Recovery,
1: Adaptation with your tanning cycle. And about this time, a uh, month from now, you're going to be multiple shades different. I'm
0: gun-shy, though. It's August. sun's at its peak right now in terms of intensity. And I don't have hair. I have no base tan at all. I, I walk outside, and I feel like I immediately smell my scalp burning. Let me
1: see the top of your head. Why don't you look down for me? Oh, you still got a tan line there a bit. It's not. It's not perfectly white.
0: Not perfectly, but. You just, you only peel your head once before you vow to never do that again. <laughs> I wouldn't I'm not Jack that. Bauer level of like sun paranoia yet, but right now I just, I have no tolerance. I'm a timid, frail man.
1: Well, you're that rare combination. Uh, what do they call you? Like the Black Irish, although you're not Irish, I believe. Um,
0: I'm 50, almost 50% 50, the Irish. The Black
1: Irish, where you got that really dark dark hair, but yet white skin, right? It's a rare mm-hmm. breed there. Over here in America, so you're holding down the fort, Bracken. That's right. Well, um, it only took me till August to to earn this one, and I got that. You know, um when you got that big tan line on your thigh, which those you've been out there like training a lot in the sun, and mm-hmm. compression, short tan line. That's how you know somebody's in good shape. When they're sporting a sweet tan right there, you know, they put in their hours out in that sun. They've been grinding. That's all I need to know. When I look, when I go show up to a race, I just start looking at man's thighs and I say, what's his thighs look like? So he got a sweet tan line. All right. He's been doing his work. He doesn't waste of time. So I'd look at you and be like, waste of time, a waste of time.
0: <laughs> yeah. You can really, and I've always said, you can tell how good someone's going to be by watching them warm up. <clears throat> You can look hmm. at their warm-up and know how much time they've been putting into training. How so? I, you're not going to go out and do a 20, 30, 40-minute running warm-up if you're not fit. True. And then the amount of drill work and how coordinated and practiced that drill work looks tells me how high level of a runner you are most of the time. There are always exceptions to the rule. But I feel like from day one, especially in OCR, because OCR wasn't runner-rich from day one, and when you didn't know exactly who everyone was and new people would show up all the time, I would just scope out the festival grounds and watch people warm up. And anyone who was doing like a full dynamic running warm up, I'm like, All right, this person's gonna have some wheels today. Mm-hmm. And I guess this the thigh tan line is is indicator number two. There's those secret
1: monsters though, and, and you guys hide in the weeds, the ones you mm-hmm. know the the early morning goers, the nine to fivers who get up at four thirty to get their run, and they never see the light of day because they're so dedicated. They get up in the morning. Enter pale guy, yeah, who's unassuming, and then you're like, "I must be one of those early morning guys." It's the only. It's the only reason he could be that good because he doesn't have that tan line on his thigh.
0: The Chad Trammels of the world. Chad, you know, lived in Seattle and then Anchorage. And so he was just never in the most sun-rich environment. And he always raced with, like, white crew cotton socks. And they weren't even always matching. And then they get kind of, like, bunched up down around his ankles. And you'd watch the guy warm <laughs> up. And he kind of has, like, a herky-jerky stride. And he just... He didn't look, for whatever reason. I'd watch him warm up and think, That guy is a secret monster he's in his dad socks hey he'd wear you know cross country the first race i ever saw him run he was in brooks mock something spiked Mm -hmm. versions the spikes were out but he had the plastic spikes might not even have been out i heard him clacking the whole race but he had his white cotton sock bunched up underneath his spikes gonna have to go back and dq him from that race that was probably pre-rules okay this was in vegas kirk Oh boy. Can you imagine wearing plastic bottom spikes in Vegas racing? <laughs> nope. And this was old Vegas venue where there were even more rocks to scramble. We did a rock scramble, and behind me I just heard click, 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 click. Well, it was important you heard that behind you. Uh, he just Instead kept on running me. Anyway, those secret monsters are the ones yep. that you've really got to watch out for. Chad's no secret monster, though. He's a,
1: he's a real monster. He's a monster um, monster. All right. Well, enough about that. I will bask in my uh tan, which just will not last very long, I assume. Uh, as it never does. Should we talk about today's uh today's topic?
0: Yeah. I've been watching a lot of Racing Kirk, as I know yeah, yeah. you have as well, but rewatched all of World Championships from Eugene on the treadmill this past week. And then I went down to Chicago. Lisa and I got a little night away from the kids parents watched the kids, and we went down and watched Decafit. So got to watch our boys, Rich Ryan, Nick Riker, Glenn Race. Mm -hmm. All throw down. And then a bunch, you know, there's a whole field of monsters and everything, but with all this racing, I was just hit over the head repeatedly with how important it is to know how to manage your effort during a race. And I'll tell you when it started. Ingebrigtsen's 1500 meter
1: Dude, I was going to bring that up as soon as we talked about this kind of stuff. Start bring thing. it up.
0: I want to see if you had the same takeaway as me.
1: Well, first of all, um, I was told that it was like seeing an A-list celebrity down at Decafit when they saw you were at the venue. Oh, yeah? You know, they were did, very Did Nick people. Riker say that? No, no, not Nick Riker. He has no reason to kiss your butt anymore anyways. But uh, just saying, <laughs> that's nice you made an appearance. That's pretty cool you made it down there. Um Let's jump into Britson in a sec, but did that um, give you any sort of feelings one way or the other, being Mm -hmm. back in that arena? I just wanted to ask you about that before we jump in.
0: Yeah, Lisa and I had a conversation on the ride home. I figured. About all those feelings. But I will say this. There is nothing cooler than seeing your t-shirt in public. Love it. Because on race day, people wake up and have the same option as every day in their life, which is, I'm going to go be seen by people. I'm going to this wherever. What am I going to wear? My whole wardrobe is open to me. And for someone to intentionally choose the running public shirt, and I had not announced I was going, so it wasn't even like they're being a homer, for them to just intentionally choose our podcast shirt just gave me the warm and fuzzies.
1: Man, what a service back to us, isn't it?
0: Ah, so I what was the great con- about myself?
1: <laughs> so what was the conversation on the way back home? I just want to know you haven't been in a competitive arena since. Oh man, what was the last competitive arena you had been in?
0: That same venue for Hyrox doubles okay, right, with right. in the
1: spring. Yep. Oh well, late yeah. winter.
0: So oh, although so- I was at I was at Vegas for Worlds, but I was doing the commentating thing, so it was very different. Okay, so how are we feeling? You know what? I don't even. <laughs> no one wants it. to
1: hear it. Inspired, inflated or apathetic?
0: Encouraged.
1: Encouraged. Okay. That's Almost more relieved. Inspired. Okay. Good.
0: Relieved. You t- we talk about secret monsters. Nothing would make me happier than to become a secret monster. Like, under-promise, over-deliver with whatever my next race is. Mm. Like my greatest joy would right now would come from showing up to a race, really fit, and no one knowing that I'm even fit and ready to race again. So that's as far as I want to go into it.
1: Okay. Well, inspired is a good thing to feel after leaving, I would say.
0: But I can tell you that today and Monday is day two of a 19-week build.
1: All right. All I need to know. We'll discuss this one offline maybe. That's Bradshaw. right. How's that sound? That's right. Uh huh. We've got to keep some of the sauce. I up. might
0: not even tell you.
1: Yeah, you're going to tell me. Come on now. Come on now. Um, okay, so Ingebrigtsen. Yes. When you talked about knowing how to gauge your effort and pacing, I thought the only reason Ingebrigtsen lost that race is because he actually managed his effort poorly, which we rarely see him do. Mm-hmm. He made one of a, ra- a rare pacing and effort mistake in which cost him to lose that race. So that's the first place my mind went. I was going to use that as an example at some point, but we went right to it. I assume that's where you were going with the Ingebrigtsen example.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We talked about it on race. Brand. I talked about it on RaceBrain last week when we were talking about our takeaways from the meet and our favorite events to watch. And I said that he ran the way I remember running in my senior year of high school when I had won probably like six or seven straight mile races. And at some point, no matter how good and practiced you are... And I am not him, but in our conference, I was doing what he was doing at the world stage, which is Mm -hmm. winning every time you step on the track for long enough that you forget what losing feels like. So I hope that doesn't come off as anything other than I felt the way he feels, but on a very small stage.
1: Let's just call it big fish, small pond. I
0: was a big fish in a small pond for a small snapshot in time.
1: Britson big fish, big pond.
0: I won the indoor conference mile championship, which in our conference was a big, our indoor conference mm-hmm. was the second biggest meet of the year. And for that was like him winning the Olympics in Tokyo. And then he went on a streak. His dad said he will never lose to Timothy Chariot again. And I don't think he's lost to him since like mm-hmm. his confidence just tipped and he was a new man. And that is the same thing happened to me. I went outdoors and I run like, five, I won like five or six straight miles in a row running fast each time. And I got to this windy meet at Brookfield East. And there wasn't supposed to be anyone in the meet, but I think it was Shorewood. No, Whitefish Bay came out. And I don't know if you remember, but about our time, Whitefish Bay had a really good crop of runners. Steve yeah. Markson was their best guy. He ran, I think, 151 or 152 in high school. They had like
1: 1535 kers. Yeah. A couple of them.
0: And I didn't know any of them individually other than Markson, and Markson was not running the mile. So I got there two, three, four guys in the mile, or something like that, and I decided I'm gonna like make the statement and Whitefish Bay is a it, the joke is White Folks Bay in Wisconsin. It is a mm-hmm. rich white, very like well to do area and West Dallas is considered kind of like the butt crack of Wisconsin in many ways. It's just like considered White mm-hmm. Alice, but like trashy, <laughs> so we we're just opposite ends of the same spectrum at that time, mm-hmm. so Anyway, that just like sets the stage. I had a chip on my shoulder. I went out there and I, all the entire season, I would sit, move up, sit, move up, and then at bell lap, be in position to either blast the last 400 or ride the winner's shoulder until it was time to pull away. And I took the lead on the backstretch of the second lap, got mm-hmm. smacked in the face with a headwind and thought, oh, this is going to be tough and just ran the next two laps really hard rather than really fast Mm -hmm. and fourth lap came and I was spit out the back and I ran like seven seconds slower than I'd run a mile yet outdoor and I finished like third or fourth and it hurt and cost me way more than any other race that and that's what I saw happen Ingebrigtsen which is he forgot for a brief moment in time that he was human and that he has to abide by the same rules of energy expenditure that everyone else on the planet has to abide by. Despite the fact that he's faster than all of them, mm-hmm. he still has a central governor in his body.
1: Yeah, to set the stage there, in case you're not in the know, Jakob Ingebrigtsen was the Olympic 1500-meter uh, champion. We had the world track and field meet in Eugene, Oregon. This past well, it was like 10 days or so. Um, and he was the heavy favorite in the 1500-meters went out, ran, and lost, and it was not expected. He, hands down, is the best person in the field, and somehow he managed to lose that race. And, and he could have won the race in two ways, which he didn't do either.
0: Mm-hmm. He
1: could have run his own race from the very gun and led from the beginning, ran the legs out of everybody, and was simply the fastest person out there. I believe he could have won from the front. Okay, he, took, he would take the lead right at lap two and just drove it out of people, mm-hmm. tightened the screws for three laps and won. He also could have sat longer and waited to make his move with about three or 400 meters to go. And I think he would have drove by still had enough in the tank to finish in first down the Mm -hmm. home stretch. But instead he took the lead somewhere in the middle there, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. and had his strategy incorrect. And, and basically what he did is he butted a wind too long. Somebody else ran a strategically better race, made an assertive move to pass him down the backstretch stretch. And Ingebrigtsen took just enough out of his own system, didn't realize it, that he could not respond. Mm-hmm. And he lost the race. He could have won the race in two ways, and he could have only lost the race really in one. And he chose the one in which he lost. And then the topic comes up. It's like, okay, if the, we consider him a strategical monster, and he came back mm-hmm. and won the 5,000 meters four days later or whatever it was. Which is pretty
0: awesome. Amazing. He learned it from his a, mistakes. And it was a master class of strategy and pacing.
1: Exactly. And so the, the thing is, if, if one of the strategical best in the world and possibly the best uh, and distance runner we have right now on the 15 and 5K can make a pacing and strategical error, what does that leave for the rest of us mortals out here? Mm-hmm. And so it just made it made sense to talk about it considering we saw it on such a big stage and all of us are dealing with this in quality sessions. Christ, it's on recovery runs, let alone races. So I yeah. figured it was time to dissect it, didn't we, bracket?
0: We did. And do you know what the first thing I did, Kirk? I was on the treadmill. I was doing 30 30 for an hour. Mm-hmm. And I got done with that race, and it pops up the next one in order. And I hopped off, and I paused my workout, and I went back. I clicked back. I was on YouTube, and I searched Tokyo 1500 meter final, men's.
1: A masterclass, that
0: final. Because it's the same athlete but he's faster now and i wanted to see what the difference was between what he just did in eugene and what he just did in tokyo so i watched the tokyo race and you know what he did off the line he went right to the back didn't he yep same thing as he did in eugene which is he eased off the line he got the car rolling it was like going down the the highway ramp on the entrance ramp onto the highway and the people around him floored it squealed their tires and blasted up to freeway speed And then settled down into the race. And he took his time, coasted up to race pace, and then kept it going. And so suddenly, 200 meters in, he's moving around the leaders right up to the front, passes Timothy Chariot, who was the best in the world at the time, and starts leading and is running pretty fast. But he just feathered the gas to get up there, and he baited Timothy into resurging. Tim immediately resurged got ahead of him and started striking out for home one lap into the race and Ingebrigtsen just sat on his shoulder. So he wanted a fast race because he's always been known as a winded up kicker, meaning he accelerates, he accelerates, he accelerates, but over like four to 600 meters rather than just like blast the last Mm hundred. And he baited Tim chariot into leading a race and tugging him along, just pulling him through. And they, That's exactly what happened. They came through in 151 through the 800. And then with a lap to go, he just pulled right up on him. And then when the kicking time came, he chose it's time to go around. He blasted right around him, coming off the final turn, and ran away to an easy victory and a personal record. He ran 328 in the 1500 and set the Olympic record. It was just a master class, but he never once burnt a match until the final turn.
1: Well, and you think like if you if you want to talk about pacing and, and strategy, it comes down to energy management as much as anything. And mm-hmm. you think, okay, what did Chariot do in that race? Well, he was forced to he hammered the gas off the uh off the line and then coasted. Then then people come up on his shoulder and he hammers the gas down again and then coasts a little bit. And then he's finally forced to hammer the gas down and keep it there. Now imagine if you are Jakob Ingebrigtsen, and all you've done is just slightly pushed on the gas, just so ever started pushing a little harder and a little harder. Who's going to get the better gas mileage? The guy who's hammered the gas three times already, or the guy who has just slowly pressed it on a little Mm -hmm. firmer as he went? Better gas mileage goes to the guy who's not hammering the gas and revving the RPMs up to 5,000. It's the guy who just... Keeps it nice and controlled and steady, and that's really what it comes down to. And mm-hmm. you know, you Jakob got bigger or better gas mileage in the Olympic Tokyo final than he got in uh, in Eugene. That's really what it comes down to, right?
0: Yeah, simple as that. So then I switched back and I rewatched Eugene after watching that one, and I and I timed again. And this time, Ingebrigtsen came off the line same as usual. Yep, but he accelerated up a little quicker. And once he got up there, he made a move to get around someone who was accelerating with him. Rather than tuck onto his shoulder, he did the same thing. I belong in the front. I'm going to run this out. And he accelerated to the lead rather than feathering to the lead. So that was match number one. And then partway through, someone came up on him wanted to make a move, and he accelerated around again. And that was match number two. And do you know what they came through the 800.
1: Like about the same time, didn't they?
0: 151 again. Yeah,
1: 151. So
0: Tokyo 151, Eugene 151. Tokyo, a match has not been wasted, and he's on match two already. Mm -hmm. And then the kicking came, and he just didn't have a gear anymore. And my college coach was not much of a teacher, but he was a great implementer of workouts.
1: I know what he's going to tell you. I remember this quote.
0: Yeah. He said in this... 1,500 meters and the 800 meters. How many matches do you get, Kirk? I don't know. He probably told you one on the start and one to finish. Maybe two. He said you get two matches and you get to decide where you use them. But one better be for the end. Mm-hmm. So you get one throughout the race and he said, Brack, and you don't have to use it. And it looked like Ingebrigtsen was running like he had a full matchbook. Mm. And then he reached in and realized oops <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have any more matches than anyone else. Because you don't get more matches the more fit you get. You still get your same amount of matches. Mm. You're just, you just faster get... when you use them.
1: <laughs> and your overall gas mileage is just a little better Yeah, uh, maybe than the rest. Yeah, you think like, okay, so I know we have OCR listeners. I know we have road race listeners. I know we have trail athlete listeners. And I know... I mean, one of my clients listens, and she hates running. She doesn't run a step if she listens. So maybe we have some non-runner listeners, is what I'm getting mm-hmm. at. I don't know. But y'all, so for those of you who've been on any start line, let's call an OCR start line, those are notoriously uh, known for people blasting off the line like they're running a 400 meters. And there's somebody that ends up 20 yards out in front, a quarter mile into the race, like who is this guy? And then about half mile in, at least by a mile, this guy's been caught, spit out. You never think about him again, see him again, worry about him or her again. It's like uh, that's an obvious that's an obvious example, and you can see this um, – well, I guess you see it uh, – you don't see it as much on the roads, do you? I guess in road races you'll see it once in a while, won't you? Yeah. Yeah, but, I think you do. But the point I'm getting at here is is everybody feels the need – and we've talked about this on previous podcasts before. It's like as soon as it's time to go, that panic button gets pushed, especially for us mortals, right? Like these – Athletes we we're talking about, like Inga Britson, and at the world final, I was like, these are professionals. They live and breathe this stuff. Um, you may think you do, but you don't in the level in which these athletes do. So, point being, is we hear the start gun go off, we push the panic button, we feel like suddenly time is, is not, the world is not our oyster, and time is against us, and we must make up for everything right out of the gates. Now, I can't think of a single time in any race that I've run, OCR, trail, road. Where that person has stuck around to win. Not one time can I ever think that person has stuck around to win, nor podium. And I can think of nobodies who have no business doing it, who have obviously been spit out the back. And I can think of really good athletes, like ones who maybe even are favored to win or podium do it, and Mm -hmm. still not end up where they should. I can think of Alvaro Vasquez in, um, in the Florida race we raced against each other in December in the Beast, shot out like a cannon. And then back in, in Jacksonville in Florida in the sprint, me, Tyler, Veerman, him, Alvaro, shot out the front again. I mean, like a cannon went off. He did not win either of those races, and he was very capable of doing so, but he mm-hmm. may have just pushed the gas too hard. So the point being is that playing hero early on typically does not bode well for your overall and best finish. Mm-hmm. And if it's highlighted on the world scene, it's obviously been highlighted a number of times in races you've run in. You know who you are if you are those athletes. Step one, don't do that. Simple as that. That's just the one point I wanted to start with. Um, As simple as it is, uh, you got to hold back early.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You have this finite number of race credits. It is a currency. And just like regular currencies, you can always spend more if you've saved it. But once you're out of money, you can't conjure up new money in the moment, like at the checkout line, if your bank account says zero, there's nothing you can really do in that moment when your card's being declined to add more money to your account. Mm-hmm. You can go home and work on it, but like that, trip, that shopping trip is done. And all you can do is learn from it. That's the same way race credits are, that you can always go faster if you find yourself having more energy. But once you've shot it, you can't do anything about it. It doesn't matter how fit you are. Once you tip over, you've tipped, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Heaven
1: forbid you finish faster than you started. Wouldn't that be a real travesty it to really come pounding be, home? It? <laughs> it would just be a real nightmare. Maybe feel You're... good for a while in your race oh. instead of, like, dog shit a quarter yeah. of the way in already. Well, like, there's we're...
0: a big fear of I'm going to get so far behind that I never catch back up. And we're not saying walk off the start line. We're not saying jog off the start line. We're saying you don't start faster than you know you can maintain and move. And maybe pace isn't even the right term because in trails, you're never going to finish faster than you start. Even even many races, your fastest split is your first 100 or 200 meters. It's not that point. It's You can't start harder effort-wise than you can maintain. Like a, the Hail Mary approach. Sometimes you have to go for it, but going for it doesn't mean running an unattainable pace. And and it's it ends up at racing, but it starts in training. I have this memory of when we lived back in Walworth where I had weeks and weeks of just bad runs. It's when I wasn't warming up. And I wasn't used to running. I'd taken a bunch of time off and I would just put on my shoes and run right out the door. And we lived in a neighborhood that was right next to the high school. And I was always running past people. And you know how that works. You blast out your door. There's a bunch of people that you work with or teach and you just naturally do what? You start running fast. Yeah. You run good. You run well. You look strong. And suddenly I'm one mile in and thinking, oh, I have nowhere to go but backwards. And it was a miserable run, four miles, six miles, eight miles. It didn't matter. The only way to get that run back together would be to stop and wait and then restart slow and build back up into it. And I didn't have the patience for that. So for weeks, I just ran poorly until I started warming up again. And then I'd walk out the door, walk over to the complex, you know, bounce around a little bit, do my warm up, and then leave through the back end of the subdivision and start. And then running got fun again but i was not enjoying running i was having miserable runs every day because of the same premise for why jakob ingebertson lost his his world championship 1500 meter title it was because i just wasn't parceling my energy appropriately so even if you never race a day in your life if you run just for pleasure it's a whole lot mo- a whole lot more pleasurable if you manage your energy correctly in that run
1: well i'm glad you brought up training cuz i think that's where we should start with this conversation yes. We should split it up into training and then into racing. And we're not going to go too far into the weeds, I think, with either. But I think just giving guiding principles is uh, would be important. So if we start with the training side, um, the bullet points that we want to hit, I think we should cover those, and I'll start with one, okay? Now, sometimes we like to, like I said, split hairs on here and break things down to a science and get real particular with things, Right. And I don't think there's al- that's always necessarily the best place for a lot of people, especially like um, the everyday runner. Maybe you're not splitting hairs like we are. Um, looking at your quality days, that's typically the first place people are going to either manage their effort well or they're going to manage it poorly. And more often than not, especially new athletes or runners, they manage it poorly, meaning their splits tend to get slower as they go. They end up hating their life the second half of the workout, often cutting reps short or not being happy with how they they finish up. And I'll tell you what, there's not much worse than finishing a quality session on your lowest note, and there's not much better than finishing a quality session on your highest note. They're very despairing as far as how you can feel leaving those. So if you're one of those who does not know your effort well, or you or do not know how to manage your effort well, because history has taught you that, there is no rush. There's no rush, no rush, no rush to be a hero, which means start very conservative. And work yourself into the workout. A lot of times starting conservative ends up being the pace you can hold towards the end of the workouts. So don't rush to be a hero on, work, on rep one. You can be a hero all you want on rep eight if it's your last rep. But in the beginning, like work into it. You're never going to regret going easy early in a workout. And you're going to feel good and build some confidence by finishing strong. And easy means like you, you may know that it's almost an embarrassing split for you to hit if you're one of those who truly blow up once in a while. So, um, starting there. And then the second thing I like to tell people in this instance, as far as workouts go, whether it's a tempo run or it is an interval session is when you look, you got to think to yourself, like, this is one of your quality days. And I simplify this for my newest athletes, the ones who we don't dissect too much early. It's like, if I'm going to average out my splits for my intervals, how am I going to run the fastest overall average for all of my intervals? Go out too hot and die later, you're gonna leave some time on the table. Go out too, too easy uh, and make up time at the end and you might, again, leave some time on the table. But the idea is is to, how can I manage my effort so overall I average the fastest time or accumulate the least amount of time? And usually people can get on board with that and saying, well, I know I need to hold back early because I don't wanna die late. But overall, Mm -hmm. the quality of your session, typically my sessions anyways, when I'm done with them is I look at them and say, how fast did I average? I don't care where I started or where I finished. It's the bulk sum of the work. And that will always show through in a workout, and it always has time to show through in a workout. It doesn't mm-hmm. need to show through in rep one. I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but you get the premise. So I want to start with that that point there.
0: That's exactly it. And, and what that leads into is what is the purpose of any given workout? Where there's always the internal component, like the biological, the 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 systemic the chemical processes that you're working on improving whether it's lactate tolerance or working at a heart rate above vo2 man whatever it is the there's that in, component yeah we'll call it the metabolic the internal workings that you're trying to improve and then there's the physical your stride your ability to use the same foot strike over and over and over again and those are interdependent even though they seem like they're not A lot of times, if I push this on an athlete and say, here's the deal, you've got to slow down early. And they're like, I don't do that in a race. I go out and hurt in a race. I need to go out and hurt here. Well, neither of the things we talked about had to do with hurting. There's an internal process and a mechanical process, but neither of them had to do with toughness. So just going out and hurting in a workout so that you can hurt in a race doesn't really work on improving your fitness. It makes you tougher mentally for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. So I I think just framing the purpose of what am I trying to accomplish here? And we're assuming we're talking about quality workouts here, but if you, if you're trying to work on the internal and the external, the best way of ever doing that is getting the most possible reps in, in the best possible way. And that means not blowing up. If you start really fast, you're not improving internally any more than if you started at the correct pace or slightly under But you're guaranteeing that your last few reps can't look like the first one. So you will be practicing a stride that isn't really the mechanically sound one you want to use. And internally, you're doing this crazy yo-yoing of crazy effort and then slowly fall off and die and maybe try to fight for the final rep. It's really not accomplishing either side of the spectrum of what you would set out to do if you were doing this like in a lab.
1: You bring up a great point, actually, something I'm really glad you touched on because I would have missed it. And that is just because you're not running your absolute fastest and hardest early in a workout doesn't mean you're not getting great benefit because biomechanical efficiency and running efficiently at fast paces is mm-hmm. as important as the metabolic systems being worked. And just like you said, just because you know you're holding back early in a, work, a workout by running slower than you know you're capable of, you're still running biomechanically efficient there. And that's important for opening those pathways, even if you're not wrecking yourself and working so hard and hating your life, doesn't mean great benefit isn't being made. And then later in the workout, if you do go out too hard, those last reps, your biomechanical efficiency is out the window. You're hanging on for dear life. Now, yes, Mm -hmm. you're working your metabolic processes. Of course, your lactate is oozing out your ears. You're so full of it, but You've lost your biomechanical efficiency, and now even though those are good metabolically, they become garbage reps biomechanically, and that's training poor habits. And so it's, and again, and in, in past episodes we've talked about going out harder and testing yourself in races and swinging for the fences. And there's a time and a place. That's not what this episode is about. This episode is about managing your effort. And so the biomechanical efficiency piece, Bracken, is actually really important. And I don't know how I went to brought that up. I don't think I don't think I would have on my own. But damn it, that's if I say half the reason we do some of these quality sessions alone is for mm-hmm. that piece. And you can just ruin it by a, squashing it early and then limping home. And so it's
0: a yeah. really good point. Watching all these races throughout all my surgeries, I've got to watch a bunch of people develop as athletes. Cause I start watching back in 2012, a bunch of races and now a decade later, a lot of the same people are racing and you get to know them kind of as athletes. The way that people feel like they know us because they hear us a few times a week. I feel like I know these athletes because I watch them run a few times a week. Mm -hmm. And there is very clearly the long, slow twitch, long distance, slow twitch runners who can run a fast mile. And then there are the speed athletes who can extend up to a mile. And they all run about the same time. But the difference comes in when they break. When the pace is too hot for them or they've made too many moves, the long distance, slow twitch, high volume training athletes, their form never changes. They just get dropped. You look at them on the back of the pack and they still look like they're running fast. They're trying hard. They're still running fast. They're just getting pulled away from. And the fast twitch athletes, the ones who are doing less, and maybe they're not all fast twitch, but the athletes who are lower volume, high intensity work, they're great when they're great. But when they start to crack, they look like how we all feel when we get dropped in a race where their form just crumbles and they break apart. Mm-hmm. They don't have the staying power of that biomechanical efficiency other than in their perfect stride. In the long distance, Stuart McSwain, uh, Stuart McSwain, I <laughs> say, Stuart McSwain, he's an Aussie. He's a super high cadence, long distance runner. He's very good in the 5 and the 10K, but he's also a very good 1500 meter runner and he ran it at Worlds because he's coming back from COVID and he didn't have time to build up volume. He doesn't really have sprint speed, but he can run a 332, 333, 1500 meter because he's done so much work at becoming efficient mechanically at a high rate of turnover that he can just churn over all day long. And when he gets dropped, he's still running like 200 cadence over and over and over. He's just not fast enough sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's like that takeaway. Watching that made me realize there's just no garbage reps in that training. They don't start fast and then fade. They just run like a freaking robot over and over and over and over and over. And eventually their stride is bulletproof.
1: Exactly. Case in point, right? I think it's important to remember that exact piece about run stride efficiency and bulletproofing just feeling comfortable at faster pacing doesn't mean feeling comfortable hating your life at faster pacing it just means feeling comfortable with that stride and turnover and it becoming Mm -hmm. second nature and so that's a lot of a lot of what we do you can actually argue like for example if you were to do uh, 400 meter repeats with a lot of rest metabolically it's probably moving the needle less than biomechanically, because by the time your heart rate gets up and you, you're finished the four hundred meters and it begins to come back down again. Whereas like a threshold run, you're going to you're gonna have much more metabolic impact by the time that mm-hmm. thing is done. So like people are like, Yeah, the spicy hard four hundred meter repeats. Yes, there's metabolic conditioning happening. Of course there is. But I would argue it's more about opening and keeping those pathways open. And so um, it's a good point yeah. to to hone in on. And I just want to give people like a starting point here. And, and I'll use myself for an example. I did a, um, a tempo progression uh, last Sunday for my long run, I believe. Now, I know I could go out and run a, a tempo run. I could go run 540 pace. I could start there conservatively and know that I could stay there or get faster as I went. However, what did I start this progression at? 640 pace. I was asleep, right? I knew that I'd be asleep, and I knew it was – and I was going to get there eventually, right? I was going to get where I needed to go eventually. Why not start conservative, work into the effort, and finish feeling good? I ended up progressing all the way down to below 5.10 pace, and I spent the last six miles averaging like 5.35. I got all my work done, and I didn't rush it, right? And I ended up on a high note, finished strong, did exactly what I wanted, left the workout feeling accomplished, got metabolic stimulant. Got biomechanical efficiency stimulant because I didn't burn too hot too early, so I stayed relaxed at a fast pace early as I progressed. Um, and I built confidence in that workout. Take that to either your own tempo run or your own interval sessions. And a progression style is like a purposeful progression style, is a very smart way to do this if you're somebody who has a hard time managing your effort. Saying, I'm gonna go run ninety seconds for my first four hundred meter repeat. And I know that's a joke. But I'm going to go do that for two of them. Then I'm going to go run 85s for two of them. Then I'm going to run. And just do it. And eventually, like, there doesn't even have to be an endpoint on a lot of these sessions for you. It's do it until you feel like you've reached your your potential or your max and then pull the plug. That way, you've ended on a high note. You've started Mm -hmm. conservatively. You've got great volume in. You've got great biomechanical efficient volume in. And half your reps were done relatively easy on the RPE scale. And you leave feeling like a boss. Like it's okay to start things that way because you're going to get your stimulation later in the workout metabolically. So I just wanted to outline that, that potential style for people. I know a lot of people write their own programs and it's like, I'm going to do eight by 800 meters. Well, maybe you just say, I'm going to do 800 meters and I'm going to start at six thirty pace and I'm just going to keep progressing until I can no longer do that. And then my workout's done. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. six, maybe it's 12. I don't know how many reps it'll be. That's a really good style of workout for somebody who doesn't know how to manage their workout effort. Yeah. That's a little hot tip for you.
0: Yeah. Are there more effective ways to metabolically progress? Maybe. Are there more effective ways for learning what your best work rate is? I don't think there is than a cut down, than a progression. Nope. That's the way you find where your floor and ceiling really should lie. Nope. And the human body, physiologically, really responds well to doing things gradually. Our body can respond and adapt to many, many things, but you can't throw the full bucket at it right away. But if you introduce stress gradually, the body is incredibly resilient. I mean, that's the entire principle of training and of sunburn and of drug tolerance, you know, anything. If you jump all the way in, you're going to overdose. But if you increase slightly, eventually you're handling loads that you couldn't even have fathomed early on, and a single effort of a workout or a race is no different. We see time and time again, athletes PR their 5k during a 10k or PR their half marathon during a marathon. And the reason that happens is twofold. One, sometimes it was an old PR and you arrived to the new race in better fitness, but more likely the answer is that you didn't set out to run hard for a 5k. You set out to run well for a 10k and in the middle you got rolling and your body responds well to small increases in pace. If you were on a treadmill and you were going up one mile per hour until you could no longer do it anymore, you would not make it as long as if you went up a half mile per hour until you couldn't do it anymore. And if you went up three miles per hour until you couldn't do it anymore, you would make it even less as well because we respond to gradual increases. And so during a race, going from zero to 60 is not the same as you going zero to 30 to 45 and then to 60. you arrive at 60 either way but now the time you can keep at 60 is much much longer and you see this all the time the other day grant fisher closed in like 157 800 meter in a 10k and yeah. it was the kind of thing where now he gets in a different race where he gets right up to that pace if he started with 157 he wouldn't have finished in like 2710 or whatever he ran that. Oh no. Yeah. It's right around 2710. But if he ran 28, 28 minute pace, and then close in 157, he can do it. Your order of operations matters in running because we're not purely a mechanical machine. Your brain can handle small increases in pain really, really well, really yeah. well. But if you came up and just took the pain right away, it would be overwhelming
1: exactly and again it's exactly why we refer back to our warm-up and cool down episodes so much because Mm -hmm. uh getting those pathways open instead of just going zero to 100 in a race without properly stimulating the system beforehand it's exactly why we outline doing pickups in your warm-up and things like things like that but yeah that's a that's a great point and i just i just want to say one last time that we're not we we are a proponent of big swings and we are a proponent of testing your limits and all of that but that's not who we're speaking to today that's not the topic today so On the the training front, then, as far as gauging effort, um, is there anything else that you want to touch on? I mean, recovery runs are sort of recovery runs. I don't know how much we need to dwell on that other than just keep it in check early and then just stay there. Um, I don't know if we can dissect. It's more about those quality days. Um, I would say the same sort of goes for the long run, in my opinion, in the sense that – you know, a lot of times I, I give people permission, athletes' permission to say, take it easy the first half, and then if you're having one of those good days where you just want to go, sure, just go if you're feeling good and you want to ratchet down the pace. I, I think that's okay in the long-run situation. Sometimes you don't really know what your body's going to give you until you're in it, but a lot of times people do tend to run a little hot early and then sort of fade home, especially if they're hitting new barriers like two-hour marks, three-hour marks with their training Mm -hmm. Um there's just no rush with those again. You can always turn those into what Bracken coins is Kenyan style run, which is Yes. You start really conservative, you do the first half set recovery pace and then you can start gradually increasing or pound home the second half. Um that's a style on the long run that you will leave feeling very satisfied without feeling the need to push too hot early. Um and that's a more listen to your body thing. You'll know once you get into that effort if that's a thing you should or should not be doing, but just no rush in the long run point being like the long run is meant to, to let you ease into it and enjoy it. And then find out what you feel like giving yourself that day. So just a, just a tip there, especially if you're doing new distances, uh, that
0: you haven't done uh, before, or haven't done often. Exactly. and The principles of racing apply to training. So even if you have no plans to ever race or you're really good at racing, you can still use it on everyday running. You know, we had, uh, we've had some runners on recently who don't want to get better. At racing, They just want to run and feel good. This applies to you. If you want to run and feel good, the easiest way to feel good running is to dawdle out the door. Mm -hmm. Like if we hear this a lot as coaches, uh, well, here's my background of running or here's where I'm currently at. I currently average about an eight minute mile on my easy days. And I know if I could get that down to a seven minute, that's about what my competitors are doing. And it's, it's that focus then on pace on an easy day. Whereas I would say, you know what the easiest way to get down to be able to average a seven minute mile on your easy days is we're going to nail our quality days and we're going to dawdle out the door at nine minute pace to start on the easy days, finish up running eight or seven thirty, feeling great. And over time, you're just going to get faster, but there's no need to set out with a pace goal on an easy day. Your goal should be to start out so slow that you can't wait to run a little quicker. And it just makes your enjoyment of running skyrocket when you're not hurting when it's supposed to feel good.
1: Yep, I agree. And I'll tell you what, the fastest way to burn yourself off or have training, you know, lose its allure is to just rub yourself, burn yourself to the ground every quality session. Like the best way to burn out, the best way to fall out of love, to go into the mid-season doldrums, which a lot of people Mm -hmm. are hitting right now is to run too hard too often. Even if you're doing great on your recovery efforts, but you feel like you need to hit a home run every single quality workout, uh, that's going to be a fast track as well to just like plateauing, burning out, and not being satisfied with your results. I, I burned pretty hot for a few weeks here recently. And this last week, I took a down. I was like, screw it. I'm only going to give seven out of six or seven out of 10 on my quality session this week. And I'm pulling one quality session because I knew I needed to reset. I, I swung for the fences on a few workouts recently. And so people think we we glorify the grind and rightfully so at times, but just know that that doesn't make you a badass if you're the one who goes out there and ends up puking after every workout or killing yourself to the point in which the rest of your day is miserable. Like that actually is, I would call stupidity rather than bravado. And so um, just knowing that you don't always have to go to the well every time it's a day that means quality. It means like you can finish that feeling in control. You can start it definitely feeling in control And one workout doesn't change your fitness. It's an accumulation of controlled, well-executed workouts that changes Mm -hmm. your fitness. So
0: just a reminder there as well. And all of these add up, add up, add up. And then you do a big game changer mental, mentally just like wreck yourself day. And those are the days where you figure out exactly how I need to get off the line in a race. When you have a 60-minute run for time, or you have a a two-hour hill session, or a four-hour hill session, the days where you're just going to swing hard, if you keep them few and far between, you do all the work to build up to it, and then you pair it with learning, what is my ceiling? And then you arrive to race day excited to exceed what you've been able to do in the past. But it never is won in the first mile. It just never is. Ever, ever, ever.
1: No, it stuck with me, uh, oddly enough, and I think... I don't even think John Yatskow said it himself. I think you had referred to him telling you this in a conversation. Maybe it was on our episode with him. He just said, I like to like I like to train easy and I like to race hard. Meaning like he rarely goes to the well as soon as he's feeling like a lot of distress or discomfort, he would probably stop his workout. Or he'll hold back, I'm going to run mile repeats at 5.15 when I know I can run them at 5 flat. But today, I'm just going to choose because when I need it, when I need to push the button, it's still going to be there when it comes on race day. And that stuck with me. Something about, like, training easy and racing hard, which is the opposite. We hear train hard, yeah. win easy. We hear this, like, do do do. I think that's kind of crap. I mean, there's its time and place, of course. Mm-hmm. Train smart, yeah. win easy. Not train hard necessarily when easy. I just, I think there's something to that. And I think he was on to something there. And so I, I remind myself of that so that I'm not just completely in the dirt when race day comes. I actually have yeah. some buttons still to push because I haven't fried myself every day in training.
0: Yeah, It's, it's perfect. Remember that series of questions we pose to people, how to approach racing. You should be able to answer questions throughout the races. Can I maintain this the entire time? Every workout, every race needs to start off with, yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is, I think so. And the final answer is, I'm not sure. You can't hit, I'm not sure, until there's not enough time left to find (laughs) out the wrong piece. If you hit, I'm not sure, on your first or second rep of a workout, you're in trouble. And... You're giving up on the six or eight reps of yes, definitely, I think so, that are really improving you long-term. If you hit, I'm not sure, two or three in, you're only going to get five reps. So good. Or you're going to get so ten simple. crappy reps.
1: So simple. So. Quarter way into your workout, it should be like, can I maintain this? Yes. Halfway in, I think so. And with a quarter left, you go, I don't know, but I'd like to find out.
0: That's that important piece, right? I'd like mm-hmm. to find out. If you think, I'm not sure, a quarter in, you don't want to find out anymore. That is no longer exciting. And the yeah. race is the same way. That first mile always feels a little better than it should because of adrenaline. Not always. Sometimes you feel like crap, but you should think, yeah, definitely. Five, first five minutes of effort, I could keep this the entire race. Right around halfway, you should be thinking, I, I'm not sure. I think so. I think I can keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And then when it's time to push that button, it should be, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'm excited to find out. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Closing the race is the only way to really maximize it. So the five, I went back and looked, Kirk, the five fastest 5Ks I've ever run. I did not break five in the first mile. I broke it in the last mile. Hmm. Any time I've broke five on mile one of a 5K, I have not broke 16. I don't even know if I've broken 16.20 in the entire race. Hmm.
1: It's very uh, convenient timing you bring that up because I've had the 5K on my mind this week,
0: Bracket, hmm. But continue. So my fastest 5K ever, I closed in 4.51. My second fi- fastest 5K, I closed in 4.56. And my third fastest, I closed in 4.56. All three of those, I was between 5.03 and 5.10 the first mile. Right around the same, maybe a little slower for the second, and then cut on almost 10 seconds my third mile. I have broke five and seven first miles in my life in a 5K and never broke 16.20 in that race. So the point is, like that's too big of a body of work for me to ignore. If I go out too fast, I can't maintain it. If I go out appropriately fast, I can go too fast at the end
1: pretty powerful seven, seven time trials under five. You've started and have races able
0: to, or
1: races versus the three best. You started slower than five and pounded at home, running your best, best time trials today.
0: 503 was my fastest or 502 opener mile to a successful race.
1: Well, wow. I'm going to keep that in mind here later this week. I think maybe mm. we'll see. Okay. So let's talk about this then. Okay. So let's, let's, I mean, the, you're right. The principles we're talking about in training absolutely apply to a race. What are the nuances of the race um, that we should keep in mind as far as gauging our race effort?
0: What would you like to start with? Well, I'm a believer in matches, Kirk. You've only got so many matches to burn. And the earlier you burn them, the more you want them later. But you have an opportunity to burn one early, tactically, if need be. If you're running, and this is the biggest one we ever hear, is either trail racing or obstacle course racing, which is there is a bottleneck early, or or whether that's obstacle or trail, and I just need to get there in, in position. You might tactically have to burn a match, but the earlier you're burning it, the more efficiently you want to burn that match. If the bottleneck is 800 meters in, rather than blasting 200 meters, you gradually just feather that throttle until you arrive at the 800 meter mark faster than you want to go, but in position. It's not a hundred meter dash to get into position and then hang on. The earlier the match is used, the more you have to be careful with how you burn it. That's, that's really where I start with race strategy is how late can I save my matches? And if I'm forced to use them, how carefully can I light this baby off?
1: Yeah, that's fair. I think, uh, I think, most races are ruined within the first three to five minutes, if it is going to be ruined in the first three to five minutes. And that might seem like a long window. It might seem like a short window, depending on the duration of your race. But just say, again, you know yourself as an athlete, whether you go backwards in races or you, you are a late charger. I'm more speaking to the people who go backwards in races. Um, it's, you know, for I'm going to look at my watch and for the first five minutes I'm going to be asleep. I'm going to disengage from competition. It's the hardest thing to do with the adrenaline and it's something that means a lot to you and you want to go out there and and prove it to yourself. But I'll tell you what feels real good guys staying asleep the first five minutes and then one by one, just picking people off who did not do that. The momentum that creates mentally for you cannot be replaced. If you were even out front running alone, trying to tighten the screws yourself. I call it, you know, how many, killing, how many killing people? How many people did you kill today, right? Like, I don't know, but like those people kill a lot. The ones who go out slow, controlled, and then just start picking them off. And all you do is gain momentum throughout the race. And it facilitates you to keep sinking your teeth into the effort as you go. Even when it starts to hurt, which inevitably it's going to, that mental momentum cannot be replaced. And so even in a half-hour race, guys, even in a Spartan sprint, a lot of you raced Asheville recently, which the winners were around 30 minutes. Yes, that still applies. Five minutes might seem like an eternity, but if you are one who can't close out races um, or just, you know, can't you survive to the finish line, which it turns into a lot, and especially trail, mountain, OCR races. um, That's the answer, man. Like set a timer, stay asleep, and then get to work. And you'd be shocked what that revving up process does for you as far as how things pan out um and often it's the best way to run your fastest time too in these longer races where it's hard to gauge effort because pacing goes out the window and so um just something to think about there because um you know who you are who are listening and you would benefit greatly from that heck some of the top guys benefit greatly from that hobie call used to do that constantly Mm -hmm. and it worked out pretty well for him didn't it i remember bracken we were in Seattle in 2017. It was my first national series race. And I, I ended up going out hot thinking I was hot shit. I blew up, took 17th, and it was the worst last 45 minutes of a race of my life. I thought I was going to go out there and jump right onto the scene. Well, I got my humble pie, of course. And in hindsight, of course, that was, was going to happen. But I was running right next to you. In between you and me was Hobie Call. And we were in about eighth to tenth maybe in there. But running for what I at my fitness at the time fast. We're about a half mile in, and I'm thinking, I'm the man here. I'm like, I'm in striking distance. I'm really engaged. I'm five minutes into the race, first of all. And you look Mm -hmm. over at Hobie, and you go, ah, taking it easy today, aren't you? There's something like that. You just taking it easy today? And you guys were casually talking. And he goes, it's a long race. There's no rush. That's all he said to you. Mm -hmm. And here I am next to him feeling rushed, feeling like, oh, my Mm -hmm. God, this is my moment. What happened? Hobie went on to have a a lead the size of I don't know, and he ended up missing the bell on on Z-Wall and spilling his rocks in the bucket, but that was his race to win. And, and still Ryan took ended took second. Still took second. Point being is that what a lesson to learn right there from the master himself in the U.S. National Series Super to say that to you, and it's stuck with me always. And ever since then, unless it's a rare exception, I've thought that and reminded myself, and that was maybe yes. almost a mile into the race. So. A uh, long-winded way of saying, bide your time, the best to even do it. You now, remember that conversation, been... by the way? Do you remember that?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that stretcher running, I was a little overextended, but I was also not trying to run up front with Fergie and Batris and Killian whoever else was, was up there, woods. Killian. And it was reassuring to hear Hobie say, yeah, we've got time, man. <laughs> we've got time. And we yep. did. I think, what happened that day? You ran a great race, and you missed the bell on the rig. You would have taken. I missed fourth the or third. bell on the rig, but I would have been yep. yeah third or fourth or fourth, something like that. Anyway, mm-hmm. point is, we all moved up. Who were intending to move up? I didn't. And those no. intending to win the first part moved back.
1: So Woodsy Woodsy was leading. He finished, I want to say, sixteenth. That was a
0: fast start to a race. Sure was. Continue. So here's what I wanted to end with today, Kirk. Yep. A little exercise that we can do out loud, and anyone at home can listen to and do along with their own hierarchy. So I want to end with the greatest of all time, not a debate, but just list in running, in triathlon, if that's your thing, in OCR, in mountain running. I don't care what your thing is, but think of who you consider the male and female goats and just list them off. So I'll start. If you look on the track and on the roads, the goats are Kenanisa Bekele on the men's side, Haile Geberselassie, Elug Kipchoge. I would put um, you have to put uh, El Garej up there. Are you Present- saying did you say the track and the roads? Track and roads, yeah, for distance. I think I would put um, I would put Ingebrigtsen up in that conversation. A couple of years, of course. And if I have to put one more up there, the,
1: uh, hmm. look at uh, two that you need to watch. But you have the the Brit. Oh my goodness, it's from the eighties,
0: talking Cram.
1: No, dang it. Oveit. No. Co.
0: Co. Sebastian Co. Sebastian Co.
1: Maybe even a David Waddell if you want to go look at that. If you want to get shorter on
0: us, you can do Dave Waddell. Yeah, um, that would be my list there. And OCR, it's John Albin, Ryan Atkins cody mode hobie call robert killian hunter mcintyre mm-hmm. um sure you could do more that's the men's side female side uh i would have the tiranesh dababa and jenzeba Debaba. i would have mary katani unfortunately she has doping but i mean mm-hmm. she got popped for that uh safan hassan i think belongs up in there um, I just, in the female field, I think you can't overlook what, um, oh my goodness, Emma Coburn has done for the U S side U S uh, female OCR it's, uh, Lindsay Webster, Zuzana, Nicole, that's my entire list. Who do you want to add to the, your greatest endurance athletes list?
1: Um, I mean, for the sake of conversation, I think you've, you've made your points, uh, as far as as far as great athletes. I want to know where you're going next with this. I have an idea. Well, I have a place I could go with this list now. But
0: I have one simple answer. Mm-hmm. Is name me the people who were from the gun front runners out of those lists. People who ran their fastest lap first. People who dropped people 400 meters into the race. I can only think of one person on that list who is known as a front runner. And that's Nicole Maracle. And I would argue that it's less of her over revving and more of her being that much faster than any other female in the OCR sport in terms of her flat ground running. But so of that list, I must've named 15 people at least men and women. I can't think, and they're all world record holders, especially on the track and in the, outside of the the American uh, Emma Coburn, but outside of her, every single one of those has held a world record at some point and been Olympic or world champion. And I can't think of a single one who's notable for being a front-running hard charger. You could say Gebre Selassie or Bekele or someone like that was kind of known for that, but it wasn't until like one or 2K into the race that they'd take over and just start charging for home. Mm -hmm. None of those people are front-runners. They're just the best. And, and another good lesson,
1: another good thing to do, if you still can't get this in your thick skulls over there, you f- people who go out hot and die home, it's just like it's in your DNA. You can't help it. You don't know how to pace. Well, that's bullshit. You can, and you can learn. So we don't need to dwell on that. But what we do need to do is go to these races. Go look at the, the, uh, the world champs that just happened. Watch the race. Watch who wins. Then go back and rewatch the race and only watch the winner. Watch Mm -hmm. him move or her move up through the field. Watch how it works. Look at the guy or girl who goes out hard in the beginning, who leads the race, who does a lot of that front running and work. See where they finish and start to just learn by other people's doings. And not saying they ran bad races. A lot of those people could be running personal bests along their way to fifth place. I don't know. But the point being is that you're going to see it repeated over and over and over. Anything short of 400 meters. You're going to see maybe 800. Sometimes you see 800
0: is the turning point. That's
1: the turning point, but we don't, we're not not talking to people who are racing 800 meters right now, whoever's listening. So just go watch and keep your eye. And if you can't, if that can't back up the words we're saying, nothing literally can go watch any men's marathon or women's marathon at the world stage, go watch any race. That's 1500 meters or longer. And on rare, rare occasion, will you see a front runner win? But 95% of the time, it's somebody that blended into the pack and somehow emerged, and you didn't even know they were a player. So just go remind yourself by watching all these races play out. It's really good. It'd be good to learn those lessons and also kill some time while you're cross training.
0: Yeah. Looking back through the World Championships, I'm talking track, cross country, road marathon, and triathlon, World Championships and Olympic Championships. I can't think of a time that the winner led the race from the beginning triathlon first person out of the water almost never wins the race track first person through the first 200 meters i can't think of an olympic champion who did other than matthew Centrowitz from the u.s in rio in the 1500 meters when he won the gold medal leading wire to wire
1: but the asterisk being they ran incredibly slow and within themselves until the last lap
0: so yes, he was, it was
1: 15 seconds slower than what he was capable of. It was something ridiculous. Like. Yeah,
0: they ran 350 on the dot for the 1500 meters. World record, 326. They were 24 seconds slower than the world record. 350 is basically what you ran in college. Yeah. Matt has run 349 in the mile which is a hundred meters longer than the 1500. So it just puts in perspective, he closed in 50 points, something in the last lap, 50 seconds. Insane. So it's just, it's not, that's the biggest outlier we've ever seen is the only example I can think of, of an endurance race being won from the gun by the Olympic or world champ or world record holder. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know of a single world record from the 1500 meters through the marathon where the second half of the race was slower than the first half of the race. So if it applies to the best and it applies to racing and it applies to interval work and it applies to easy work, we really don't have excuse for intentionally failing or unintentionally failing.
1: Yep. Yeah, the men's marathon in the U.S. champs or the world champs is a great example of that. They're running three O's in the kilometers early. And the gentleman who won started throwing in two forties halfway through negative split. Oh, they're only on two twelve marathon pace. It's gonna be a slow marathon. Then guess what? It was two oh six. And then it was two oh six and two oh seven. Plenty of time to make it up, and they set a world three the top three guys set a world marathon championship record. And they were behind halfway through. Like well behind. So point being it's a good way to run your best race.
0: Um, what else, Bracken? Are we good there? Yeah, I mean, you have to finish with uh, encouragement, which is, I know the pushback is, I don't know that this will work for me. I can't trust that it's going to work. And you earn that trust in practice. The more efforts you put in where you negative split, meaning you run faster at the end than you do in the beginning or even split. The more times you do that in an interval session, in a tempo run, in a long run, in a time trial, the more times you do that, the greater your confidence is that All right, I've done it in every one of those forums. I know I can do it in the race. And I'm more well acquainted with what my range is for going out more relaxed, but still like engaging in the race. So this is one of those, you take it on faith, but you bulletproof it in practice. That gives you race day ability and confidence.
1: Yep, I agree with that 100%. Speaking of 5K time trial, if I'm going to do one, what what do you think I should go out in for that first mile now that we've had this debate? What do you think I should
0: shoot for? You know what? I would give you a little different advice than I would give the average person.
1: Okay. Because I
0: think you're way more fit than you've been for any 5K time trial in your life. You've had comparable fitness in other areas, but I can't say that you've time trialed a 5K solo in this fitness. Would that be accurate?
1: That's very accurate. I haven't 5K time trialed since coming back from injury in december of 2020, almost almost two years ago
0: so i would set a two lap limiter for you not a full mile because my worry would be if you said okay i'm gonna run 505 or 510 through the mile you're just gonna have not enough time to do all the the cut down that i think you're capable of doing so i would set a one or two lap I'd say I'm running my first lap at 76 and my second lap at 76 or something like that. 78, 78. And then from there I have free reign. Do I felt it. I'm already a half mile in, but I have two and a half miles to do as much as I want. So I think I would set two laps and then either hang on to that or you start cutting down.
1: Yeah, I like that advice. And I might do it on the roads too. Um, just because my watch has this way of dinging early on the track so it throws yeah. me off. It'll like ding when I still got 30 meters left in the mile and, it, and for some reason, I mean I can still figure it out. I'm not worried about it but sometimes the road's just a little simpler if the watch isn't perfectly in sync with the, uh, or just go back to like, I'll grab an old school watch I guess yeah. once I could do that, that'd be easy enough too. That's still then what I, I do
0: for time trials Then it don't go if on Strava I want, If I want the GPS file I wear two watches hmm. I have my GPS watch with alerts turned off and I don't look at it. So I press start, and then I, I actually start on time with mm. the other watch.
1: Smart. Maybe. We'll see. Um, all right, TBD. We'll see how that goes. You'll find out. Maybe. I haven't decided. What are you going to do? I don't know. We'll see how my legs come around. I, I really smashed them downhills this weekend, and my hips are sore today. So
0: You had a big day on the ski hill. Yeah, it was fun. Um, fun. Two cool hours of climbing and descending?
1: Yeah, and just, you know, it's like 85 and no wind, and it's one of those. Like, got just said, can we please sleep in for once because I'm just bad at it? And I said, fine, I'll set an alarm for 730, and I forced myself to stay in bed, and I actually did it. Woke up a bunch. So, anyways, I didn't get to ski hill till like, 10 o'clock, hmm. and that's always a disaster in the summer, you know. But-
0: so saw you were in started- the Extreme 2s by VJ. Nope,
1: that was on the oh, trail. Oh, no, no,
0: no, no. You were, you were in the Tectons, weren't you?
1: Yeah, my second run in the Tectons, yeah.
0: Your treadmill workout was in the, the extremes. How did you like the Tectons on Ski Hill? Loved them. Really?
1: Yeah, and they, they actually locked in pretty dang good going downhill. If I were racing in them, I would have probably tightened them a little bit after my warm-up, let's say, in the forefoot. But, like, very impressed. I was shocked how well I was locked in on those. Not the fastest shoe to descend in, but for how much cushion it gives, it it has probably... Um, over kicked its coverage for my expectations. Out kicked its coverage, so to speak. Because was that was your that, shoe.
0: that was your half complaint slash TBD about that shoe after your first run in it was I don't know if this would be my downhill shoe of choice.
1: And it still wouldn't be, but if I needed protection, it was a long race. It it showed up to the task
0: well okay. enough. Okay, so we're getting a little long here, but personal curiosity and I know there's people out here that do mm-hmm. want to hear it. Where does that sit on your downhill hierarchy? Like, let's say that the extreme racing one. Or the, uh, racing or training? Racing. If extreme one, extreme two, innovate Xtal, uh, innovate uh, X, yeah, Xtal, and the uh, Hoka Evo Jaws, um, even like the Super Track RC, if that's like the cream of the crop for if mm-hmm. I want to descend super fast. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got your your speed goats or your Evo Mafates or Evo speed goats for long distance racing, descending, where does the Tecton X fit in that hierarchy?
1: Uh, Number one for me is the Scott super track RC.
0: As long as it's not wet grass or mud. Correct.
1: As far as what I can do on dry terrain, it just doesn't have a super aggressive lugs. Um, Although they're there, they're just not terribly grippy compared to some of the technology and like the VJs Mm -hmm. or even innovate, but super track RC too, for sure. Following that, um, it's a tie between the the Extreme and the Extreme 2 as far as descending goes. Mm-hmm. But overall, for flats and maybe climbing, I like the Extreme 2 more. But if you're asking just downhills, I could take either the Extreme or the Extreme 2. They both feel good. Um, I like a little wider in the Extreme 2, but that also gives maybe takes away a little bit of the lock. Just a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, and then from there... Uh, I'm leaving it. Actually, those are the only shoes I've really enjoyed descending in, like, where I've never worried about my feet. Those would be the only two. And then the Tecton X would would parallel even some of my old Innovates um, because they had roomy toe boxes, I felt like. Um, so you had the X 200s, right? right? hmm Yeah. Uh, and the 190s. Uh, which oh, I you liked. did have the 190s. hmm 190s were tighter than the 200s. 200s got a little roomy. But, um, yeah, but I would say the Tecton X, like, again, but if this is a race in which I'm on my feet for three hours – Tecton X, I would choose probably over all of those shoes every time. So it's up there. I was impressed.
0: For descending, let's say Tennessee Mile, for example, (laughs) where you're going to descend over and over, but you're not ripping the downhills. You're running them fast, but you're doing it for, you're going to spend three hours of downhill. Where would you place that compared to an Extreme 2, uh, a Speed Goat, and an Evil Mafate, and an Evil Speed Goat to keep that in the Hoka family? 100%
1: 100% hands down, I would uh, pick the Tecton X and really? then I would pick the Evo Speed Goat, but you can't get that anymore. So, um, yeah, it'd be the only choice. I won't even, won't even think anymore about what shoe I'd wear. Um, the Speed Goat 5 is great, though. So, I, the, the new 5, obviously, not the older models as far as maybe
0: racing in that.
1: Um, mm-hmm. but I think the Tecton, they nailed it. I think they nailed it.
0: What about the descents? This will be my last question then. What about the descents between the Tecton X and the Speedgoat 5? What is the difference that makes the Tecton X your choice? Because they have almost the same bottom, almost.
1: The Tecton X is spongier, so it would save the legs a little more. That would be it. It actually hugs my forefoot a little tighter too, and I kind of like that. Um, But the Speedgoat 5 is a shoe they nailed, so it's so close. But I would say it, it would save you with a lot of descending because it it's softer, uh, much like the Alpha Fly save you on the roads a little bit once you get to the back half. And then uh, and then I would say just a little snugger in the arch where the arch meets the forefoot. So that's why I think it would be a better choice. But
0: if you got wide feet, you would probably want the speed go five. Where is the differentiating point? Like at what point would you split and take the five rather than the tecton? Right now I don't have one. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I would. I would. The
1: Tecton isn't a fast shoe. Like I don't think it's a fast shoe. I think it's an a, it's a efficient shoe. Meaning it saves you a yeah. little bit. But I don't feel fast in that shoe. But I feel durable in that shoe. Interesting. Mm-hmm. You will have to try.
0: Yeah, I haven't run downhill in them yet. Mm-hmm. Fast right. approaching.
1: Yeah, I hope so, man. And uh, I'm going to just advertise for myself here quick, folks. I have one coaching spot left. One. If you're sitting on your thumbs and you've been thinking about it, reach out because i got one left and I'm at capacity. So I'm just going to tell you that. Slide into my DMs or email me. How about you, Bracken? You about full yet?
0: Uh, I would say I have two to three, but I'm not necessarily looking to fill them.
1: Yeah, I, get you. Like I, I like where
0: I'm at. I think I could do two to three more, but I always usually keep one or two for people that I know or have worked with in the past who are coming back from something. Okay. So that's a very vague answer. If you okay. know me, I probably have a spot for you. If you don't, <laughs> I'm probably at capacity right now.
1: Yeah, that's a fair answer. And, I, and if I don't know you, I have a spot for you. And if okay. I do know you, I could probably find some room. We'll call it that. But um, anything else? I mean, any housekeeping? I'm right about
0: where I like to be though. Cool.
1: I don't know about housekeeping. I got to get on getting this t-shirt folks. I've been getting messages about it. I just got to get on it. I got to do it. Yeah. I think it's time do it. Yeah. I just got to be willing to say goodbye to like five grand up front to order t-shirts. That's always like the painful (laughs) part. And then trust that people will buy them after I get them. That's always like the hold your breath moment.
0: All right. I haven't talked to you about this, but I want to float the idea of a destination running public race past the audience. Okay. I'm listening. I was chatting with Jared Price, who uh, Les Cowan is now referring to as the teacher's pet since I bring him up a lot on the podcast. But uh, we were discussing the idea of maybe doing a destination race. I had talked about doing that Seven Sisters race in Ireland last year and a few people had messaged and said, I would travel and do that race. And it got me thinking, what if there was just a big Airbnb for running public listeners, athletes, and coaches. And we went and did an like a truly, and I don't use this word often, a truly epic race. And we all me kind you, of
1: me and you go choose the course, mark it up. We do it
0: all. Yeah, we it's me. a course we decide is a great test of in, an endurance athlete. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a destination style race. And it's an open invite to anyone who wants to train towards it. Let's all like Let's let's all mark this on our calendar and go do a big, probably mountain-based, epic scale race. And and all you know, s- schedule your travel so you're there around the same time. You know, have a big Airbnb. You can just like a mixer of an endurance like-minded people and go do. Like, it would be kind of like if it was Ireland Seven Sisters. It'd be kind of cool to show up with like fifteen or twenty running public people and just all go out and try to thrash ourselves on the same day. We've been talking about the training camp, and I think a race would be the easy entry point to that, to gauge interest and not have to, like like you said, put up 15 or 20 grand of putting on a camp and not sure if it's really what's going to work out or not. I think meeting for a race would be a good proof of concept and a lot of fun for a lot of people to do and kind of join along on each other's journey.
1: Goes without saying, I'm in, Bracken.
0: Okay. So I have a few ideas about where, if you have requests or information, or if you just like the idea, reach on out.
1: Yeah, non-altitude mountains. Duh. Let's go pick a spot where it doesn't exclude people who live close to sea level, but still got some gnarly mountains, which there's plenty of opportunity. So let's just not put it in the Rockies. That's yeah. start one. Then we can go from there.
0: And if that offends you because you live at altitude, well, just drop down from altitude and crush everyone.
1: That's exactly right. Win,
0: win. Right, yeah, so reach out if you have interest in that. I'd like to I'd like to do that.
1: All right. Now reach out if you want my one last spot.
0: <laughs> Seeing people you. at DECA showed <laughs> me that there's a social component to this that we can mm-hmm. we can engage deeper on. I like it.
1: Alright All right. guys, thank you for listening. Hopefully you got something out of this
0: one. Ciao. <music>